Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary, into this space. And for those of you that are gathering with us at home, thanks for bringing the church into your dining room, your, your living room. Thanks for inviting us into those spaces. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, whether here in person or gathering with us on, online, uh, we've never met before. My name is Jamie. It's my great joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. It's a great joy to be able to open up the scriptures with you all. Um, and just in case you're wondering, like midway through, like, you know when you're on the end of like a cold and your voice hasn't caught up to, um, that's, that's where things are at for me. So a little more water this morning if you're like, his voice seems to be giving out. Kind of happened in the first service. I'm like, all right, so we'll just, we'll see how it goes. But anyway, so there's the uh, caveat with that. But we are continuing a series called Come and See, all right? It's this great journey through the book of John, and there's an invitation over and over again to come and to see and to experience more of who Jesus is, and that we in turn then might invite other people like we're seeing, like with the Samaritan woman at the well, like, come and see, come and hear, come and get to know this Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. It simply means, hey, like, I've encountered Jesus, and I'm encountering Jesus, and I want to invite you to do the same. And so this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 6. So I'd encourage you, if you brought a Bible, go to John chapter 6, or you can always go to cplife.church. The second card you'll see as you swipe over says message notes. I encourage you to follow along there. I'm going to go ahead and read this in its entirety. And as has been the case in the book of John, if you've been traveling with us in this, is there have been different signs that Jesus has been doing, and they're being documented by John. Like the first one was the turning water into wine. Jesus is keeping the party going. Like it's just amazing stuff. And we see Jesus over and over again at work, showcasing not just arbitrary power, but he's communicating something very significant as these signs take place. And so this morning, we get not one, but actually two signs. So the two that we're going to look at, and there's some similarities that are happening between them, although they're very obviously different signs, different stories, is on the one, we'll read first the feeding of the 5,000, and then we will look at Jesus walking on water as he encounters the disciples there in the storm out on the lake, all right? And these particular stories are massively significant that we'll look at together. In fact, the feeding of the 5,000 outside of the cross and resurrection as the sign in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them tell the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Like there's something massively significant going on there. So let me go ahead and read John chapter six, one through 21, and then we'll make our way back through this great text. Here is God's word. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. And Jesus went up on a mountain, sat down there with his disciples. Verse four, now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii, which just to translate, because we probably don't know our denarii necessarily, this is eight months' wages for an average kind of laborer in that day. So this, this, it would take a lot. Worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves, two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, well, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down, and the men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were full, he told his disciples, 
collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them. They filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now we get the fifth sign, walking on water. Pick it up in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, the sea began to churn, and after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. This is God's word for us this morning. And so as we look at this, what I want to put before you this morning is there's a demonstration of power that's taking place here. So I want to look at a, in this text, I think we see a story of power. I think we see demonstrations of God's power. And then I want to ask us to consider, like, how can we experience God's power? And as I was reflecting on that, this might be a story that a few of you have heard before, but it's a story I enjoy telling. And so I will tell it again. And I have the microphone. So I guess that's how we're doing it, right? So, um, but one of the very first times that I ever preached, I think it was the second time I'd, I'd ever preached, talk about a feeling of powerlessness and then power. And the feeling of powerlessness came not just from being terrified for getting up in front of people, though that was certainly present. My second sermon ever was at a church. There were a few hundred people gathered. And as I looked out and I was starting to make my way through the text, I'd actually just read a passage that we'll be in in a few weeks, John chapter nine. It's about a blind man, all right? And so I'm describing this man's world, like what it would have been look like for him to be, his entire life he spent blind, he can't see anything, everything just to be in complete and utter darkness, all right? And I wanted to go eventually to Genesis chapter one and talk about the world where it was, it was, it was empty and void and darkness kind of was just kind of covering the face of the earth. And literally as I'm reading this and explaining this and kind of setting things up, I, I said, and there was darkness everywhere. Like that, all the power in the building went out. Like literally, completely went out. Everything went dark. I lost my computer with my slides, which I don't know how anyone preaches without slides, right? Like it was just done for. And I'm a nervous wreck. I mean, I had hardly preached for one, and now everything's pitch black. Like the little emergency lights have come on, the sound system's gone, the projection's gone, and I'm standing there. Now talk about a feeling of vulnerability, powerlessness, and I'm like, now, not today I don't have a strong voice, but generally, maybe it was my days of youth ministry, I was just used to like projecting loudly and yelling at kids to get over here and do, do sorts of things at camp. I was like, well, clearly power's not coming back on. Clearly nobody's coming to help me as I'm stranded up here on the stage, all right? So I'm like, all right, if you got your Bible, all right, let me, and I just started trying to project in kind of this big room, much bigger than this room, like as loud as I could. And I was like, Genesis chapter one, and I begin reading through it, and I get to the spot, and I said, let there be light, all right, as I'm trying to say it loudly, and the moment I said, let there be light, the power came back on. And I was like, I've got the power. This is unbelievable. 
And so it went from this utter like powerlessness, vulnerability, just feeling like what in the world is happening to suddenly like this moment and people literally afterwards like, wow, it's so great how you choreographed that. I was like, no, it was not the plan, all right? Like we did not have a transformer in the city blow just so that I could make a point during a sermon, right? But it was, the theatrics were great, I guess. Now, that feeling of powerlessness and then, although it wasn't real power, but for a moment I was like, wow, I, I said, let there be light. Now, that's the kind of power God possesses. And what we're gonna see in this text is this invitation to experience the power of God. And keep in mind, though, that feeling of powerlessness. Because rather than that being something to shun, something to push away, something to, to think like, man, I wish I wasn't in that spot, this text is gonna show us as we get further into it that that's the best possible place to be. So if you came in this morning and you're feeling like, man, I'm out of control, a lack of power, things not going the way that you want them to go. I believe there's some encouragement in this. And so let's talk for a moment about the opening verses because there is this story of power that's being communicated. And it's a story of God's power throughout. I mean, that's ultimately this story. It's telling a story of like how God is at work. And there's a detail that emerges very early on in this text that if we're not careful, we can just sort of move past. But for the people then, the original hearers, like this would have been like, oh, okay, this is a significant detail. So look with me again. It says, after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. What's fascinating to know as well is like the disciples and the other, other accounts of this had just been on this mission. Jesus is trying to get them some time to just rest and to recuperate. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But they go across, and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up on a mountain. He sat down there with his disciples. And then verse 4, it says this. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. That little line that word about the Passover, we cannot miss. It was hugely significant. And so at one level, John is telling us like, hey, it's around that time. People would have been gathering. People would have been flocking to this region. Like there was like an energy in the air. Like those of you who've ever visited like a New York City or like kind of a big downtown area, you're just like, man, there's just like this frenetic pace. And there's just something, it's just kind of a buzz. Like that's what it was like. Not only that, but there was a heightened political fervor because it was around Passover that God's people would have been so anxious to be delivered from the Romans. So all of this is present. And so when John says this, there's a, there's a story of power that he's trying to connect the dots for because what ends up happening right, is he talks about bread and he talks about water. Provision of the bread, feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus walking on water. Now, for the Jewish people in like what they were aware of, the Passover was so significant, and maybe many of you have studied this and you know this, in the story of the Exodus, God's people are in bondage in Egypt under the rule and like the ruthless reign of Pharaoh. And what does God do? He raises up a man named Moses who delivers them, all right? And he delivers them out into the wilderness, all right, on their way to the promised land, and they run out of what? They run out of food, and they wonder, like, how in the world is God going to provide? And what does God do? God provides manna from heaven. And what had preceded that was the people of God, after they fled the Egyptians, and the Egyptians have a change of heart, and they're like, we're going to go after them and get these people back so that they can serve our country. 
they stand on the edge of the Red Sea and they're like, we're doomed. Like we've literally been taken out here just to, to die out here on the shore of the sea. And God miraculously parts the Red Sea. And so in the Jewish mind at that time, stories of bread and of water were massively significant. And so what's happening here, Jesus is not just demonstrating his power in some arbitrary way. It's not that Jesus just showed up and said, hey, what kind of party trick can I do today? Like, what would the crowd like to see? Oh, maybe I'll fly around. I mean, that would have been amazing. That'd be cool. We'd all like to see somebody fly. But that's not what he does. He doesn't look out and say, oh, look at those kittens. I'll turn them into dinosaurs. Like, that's not what Jesus is doing. It's not arbitrary, as cool as that might be, or terrifying to see kittens go to dinosaurs. But what is happening is he's trying to get people to see what Jesus is doing is he's leading a new exodus. And for God's people to be brought out from Egypt under the ruthless reign of Pharaoh into the promised land to enjoy the presence of God, Jesus is saying, like, that's what's taking place here. And so when he does these particular miracles, it's not arbitrary. It's not just so he can flex and sort of show off. He's saying, what I am doing, there's a new Moses that's on the scene, all right? As he goes up on the mountain, that's even significant. All of these details. For the Jewish people, the lights on the dashboard would have been going off like crazy, and Jesus is trying to get us, the people then and us as well, as John writes this, to see this story. It's about a new exodus. It's about new liberation. It's about really finding freedom, that there's a story of God's liberating power. Now, we look at that and we think, okay, that's great that God freed them. And we might struggle at times to connect the dots. Like, what does that have to do with your life and my life in this time in this place? If we're honest, I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to just step back for a moment and ask, where am I stuck? Where do I need to experience liberation and deliverance? And so maybe a way to think about it is as we look at the bread and the water and these accounts, like, where do you need deliverance? There are all sorts of things that we look to. And we can find ourselves getting stuck. We get enslaved to the approval of other people. We find ourselves stuck and enslaved by our desire for control and power or comfort. Like there's all these things sort of humming just beneath the surface that if we don't pay attention to them, like they will just, they will drive us. And Jesus is saying, I want to deliver you from that. There's a whole new way to live. He's opening up for God's people this new exodus. And so maybe a way, again, to think about it, there's a, a great book called Addictions and Grace I've used this quote before, but I think it's helpful just to, to revisit. Gerald May says it this way. He's talking about the human condition, and the reality is we're all enslaved. We're all like God's people living under the ruthless reign of Pharaoh. Like, we need to be delivered. He says this. I realized that for both myself and other people, addictions are not limited to substances. I was also addicted to work to performance, responsibility, intimacy, being liked, helping others, and an almost endless list of other behaviors. And I also learned that all people are addicts and that addictions to alcohol and other drugs are simply more obvious and tragic addictions than others have. To be alive is to be addicted, and to be alive and addicted is to stand in need of grace. The storyline of the Bible this story of power is ultimately a story of God's grace and how he wants to liberate us. 
And so as we press in now for a moment, we, let's look at these demonstrations of power, specifically what's happening with the feeding of the 5,000 and then with Jesus walking on, on water. I think the more we understand what's going on there, the clearer picture hopefully we will have of what we need to be delivered from. Because it's not just being delivered like God's people were from Egypt. The reality is you and I need to be delivered from our bondage to sin. Like we're dead in our sin and trespasses. We are captive to sin. We are enslaved to sin. And unless God intervenes, unless God does his work, we are going to be stuck. We have this massive addiction problem. It's an addiction to self of just doing what I want to do. And Jesus is coming to free us from that. So as we look back over this, we won't spend time in every last verse, but I want to call attention to a few things that we see in this just demonstration of power. Again, not arbitrary. It's not Jesus just randomly picking things to do, but he is showcasing. It's the first thing, as we're told about the feeding of the 5,000, it says this. So when Jesus looked up, so when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd, and it is a huge crowd. Did you notice the detail there? 5,000 men. That's how things worked back then. You're trying to take count of something, you would count the men. But there were women that were in this crowd. There were children in this crowd. Like conservative estimates, we're at 15,000 plus people. 15,000 plus people following Jesus. Think of like a large like basketball arena. That crowd literally, and what's so fascinating is Jesus is trying to get some R&R for his disciples. He's trying to like get away. Let's go off to the hillside and then... 15,000 people show up. And what was true of Jesus' disposition to the crowd is true for you and me. Like right now, did you hear, did you see that word? He noticed. Not just a sea of humanity. He noticed every single individual, their story, the particulars, the things that they had questions about, their family history, their family of origin, all the dysfunction, all the things that had taken place. Like Jesus looks at that and he notices them. And he notices that they're going to be hungry. And he notices that there are people that are desperate to find some sort of liberation. And he notices that they think their biggest issue is the Romans, but he knows that they need something more. And the same God that noticed the crowd notices you. He saw everything that happened this week. He was not indifferent to any of it. He sees everything that's ever happened in your life. He's intimately involved in it. He will forever be involved in it. You are seen and known. You may not be seen and known perfectly by people. You, you won't. There'll be tons of disappointment. But the God of the universe, he sees you, he knows you, and like Jesus, like as Jesus says here with the crowd, like he continues to move toward people. What Jesus does with the disciples in the boat, like he moves toward them. That's the disposition of our God. He notices. And then Jesus says this to Philip, hey, where are we going to buy bread so that all these people can eat? Now, he's not asking in the sense that he's dumbfounded and he's like, I, I literally, I don't know. Like, you know, they didn't have shipped that they could just go and you know, place an order, Amazon Prime to come deliver it out there on the hillside, right? Like what is going to happen? But Jesus is always, he's literally using every opportunity as a teachable moment. And so when he asked that question to Philip, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, but rather he's wanting Philip to see like, hey, what do you have to bring? And we're gonna look at this more in a few moments. But he asked that question, all right, where will we buy food? That Jesus is setting things up so that a word can be taught, something can be experienced. 
and he's not doing it in some sort of mean-spirited, vindictive sort of way, but rather he's just saying like, hey, here's the situation. Let's, let's talk about it for a moment. And it is an opportunity then for God to be at work. And so we know the story, right? The boy, Andrew, is like, well, hey, there's this young boy here who is the only responsible one, apparently, among 15,000 people, right? The one kid that packed a lunch, and Jesus is like, all right, I'll take that. And it's like, wait, what? Like, I'm the only one that thought ahead of time, right? So he's the one planner amongst the whole group of people, all right? And then Jesus takes that. He gives thanks for it. And you know the miracle, right? I mean, it's just abundance. And it says this, when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers, I don't know how you view God, but the way the scriptures speak of God and what they're trying to emphasize over and over again is that there's a God who sees you, who knows you, who moves toward you, who's not indifferent to your pain, and it is a God of abundance. Now, I don't mean that some sort of prosperity that here on this earth, everything's gonna be amazing and you're just gonna have like everything under the sun that you could want. But God's disposition is not one of like begrudging generosity. This is a picture of the abundant, lavish love of God, a God that would actually give his son for you and for me to lead us in deliverance, to be able to free us. And when they were full, he told his disciples, go and collect the leftovers. And if you're that person in, in your home that's like, hey, what are we having to dinner tonight? We're gonna have leftovers and somebody complains. I do that. Um, there's a verse to back you up apparently. Like, hey, leftovers are good. So go collect the leftovers, all right? So here you have this, and it's just showing abundance. Even that there were 12 baskets, there's probably, you know, commentators will talk about, like, there's significance there. 12 tribes of Israel, like God saying, I'm taking care of all my people. All of these things are communicating. And then if we look at the next sign, right, it tells us that Jesus sends the disciples. He stays back a bit after the feeding of the 5,000. They get on the boat. They're supposed to go across the, the lake, and we're, we get this word. It says, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. And he was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And so for one, just a demonstration of power, Jesus is literally walking on the water. And that is, like, if you try that, like, it's impossible, right? Like, you can't, you can't do it. So he's demonstrating his power, but it's more than that as well, because for the, the Jewish people, what they believed was like the sea, like even though these guys were fishermen and they were experienced and they'd been out on that lake before, everyone had sort of this fear because they believed like, like the chaos was sort of inhabited, like the evil spirits sort of inhabited like the deep waters. There was this, this view. And so even this, when Jesus is walking on the water, it's a way of communicating like, hey, I've got my boot like on the, the neck of, of the enemy. Like I'm literally, there's nothing to fear. He's walking on the water, proving that he's got all power, he's got all strength. Again, it's not a random miracle. He's trying to showcase his power, his strength, his sovereignty over the evil and chaos. And then he shows up. And what's so fascinating here is he says, it is I, don't be afraid. Because they're terrified. I mean, they know Jesus, but they seem, when you and I, and don't think for a moment that we wouldn't be terrified. We might read that and be like, well, they knew Jesus. Why would they be afraid? They are now seeing more clearly the grandeur, the holiness, the majesty of God. It's an Isaiah 6 sort of moment. Like, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Like, they're undone. They're afraid because suddenly this one that they've traveled with, they had meals with, they saw him get hungry and thirsty and smelled his smelly feet and all of that. They're like, wow, this guy 
walking on water, sovereign over it all. And that our translations don't do this justice. This is another moment for Jesus to demonstrate, hey, I'm part of this story. I'm the fulfillment of this story of the Exodus. Because he shows up and he says, it is I, don't be afraid. But the more accurate way to translate that is Jesus looked out and he sees the disciples on the boat and they're terrified. And his word to them is, don't be afraid, I am. Don't be afraid, I am. And again, for the followers of God, God's people, the Jewish people, their hero was Moses. Moses was commissioned, do you remember this story? Before he led the people out, he has the encounter with the burning bush and God is telling him, you need to go and set my people free. You need to go deliver them and I'm going to use you. And Moses is like, okay, who am I gonna say sent me? And he says, I am, as if that clears it up, right? No beginning, no end, forever and always. The God of the universe, I am. And so when Jesus shows up, it's not just him saying he has power and strength. He's actually making it clear. The God of the universe is walking with you. Don't be afraid because the God of the universe is with you. He sees you. He knows you. He moves toward them in the boat. He's sovereign over it all, and his presence is there. I am is with you. If you are a follower of Christ, this is what's been open to you. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's difficulty. Yes, there's sorrow upon sorrow sometimes. But don't lose sight of this. The words Jesus spoke to the disciples in the boat are the same words he speaks to us. Don't be afraid. I am. He doesn't say, don't be afraid. The sky is going to clear. Don't be afraid. The storm's going to last only five more minutes. He doesn't promise any of those things. He just says, don't be afraid. I am. I am with you. Are you and I resting in the presence of God? There's no promise that circumstances are going to change. Circumstances might get worse, but the same truth holds. Don't be afraid. I am. That's what Jesus offers to them. And then, I wish we had more explanation of this. We can ask Jesus one day when, when we get to stand face to face with him. It says, and at once, all right, they invite Jesus into the boat. At once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. All right, so apparently they've been rowing for hours and hours. They're not getting anywhere. And then Jesus gets in the boat and boom, they're at the shore, right? I don't know how that worked. I don't know what kind of transportation that is. It's clearly not like driveling down I-4, right? Like, I don't know what happened, but somehow they are there. And again, it's a demonstration of the power of God. And so, what do we do with this? This is the last part then. The question that gets raised, if this is true, if this is the God we've been singing songs to, if this is the God who gave us this word, if this is the God that's calling us to worship, like how can you and I experience this power? What does it look like to experience the transforming power of God? And in the way that God does, time and time again, it's completely upside down. So let me put these things before you this morning that we see here in this text. The very first thing, if you're going to experience the power of God, if you're going to experience deliverance, liberation, if I'm going to experience that, it has to start with, it, with an admit, admission of our powerlessness. Like admit you're powerless. Like that opening story of standing in front of a crowd of people and having the power go out, no working microphone, all that. Like I felt powerless that is relatively insignificant compared to some things that many of you are, are carrying in here th this morning. 
And the question becomes, will we be honest about it? Will we admit how powerless we really are? That's what's happening in the story here. So when we read things like, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Again, apparently the one kid amongst the 15,000 plus people who actually got a plan together, right, got the lunch, but even the detail there, the poor of the poor had loaves of barley. It wasn't the preferred bread. So this is even telling us, here's this overlooked by the world standard insignificant young little kid, this, this little boy. And it's not some massive fish that he's caught. Picture more like a couple of sardines. And this is what he has. It's this demonstration of just like it's powerlessness, it's weakness, it's vulnerability. And what does Jesus do? Cool, I'll take that. I'll work through that. That's what God loves to do. Because at the end of the day, it's kind of cool that the kid brought a lunch, but at the end of the day, he wasn't going to be able to change the trajectory of like this whole story. He wasn't going to be able to feed everybody. Philip wasn't going to be able to do it. It's only Jesus that can actually satisfy. And what he does is he works through our brokenness, just our lowliness, like all of that. We read it in the account on the sea there. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. And they're dealing with the, they're dealing with the storm. They're crying out. And these are seasoned, like these are veteran sailors. This wouldn't have been, this is not their first rodeo, so to speak, right? Like they would have been in storms before. And yet there's this call, like will we admit our powerlessness? Will we stop pretending like we've got it all together? Will we actually admit our need? And God in his grace, one of the accounts as you go and read this, like in Matthew and Mark, what precedes it, it tells us like Jesus, it says like made them get into the boat. And Jesus, who's Lord of the storm, knows that a storm is coming. Like, he purposely put them on this particular boat at that time because he knew there were things that they needed to learn, things that he needed to teach them, not because he's mean-spirited, but because he loves them and he wants them to know their need. Look at this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He just sums it up so beautifully. He says it this way. He says, your extremity is God's opportunity. The difficulty all along has been to get to the end of you. For when a man gets to the end of himself, he has reached the beginning of God's working. The difficulty all along, right? Like I think the difficulties, the circumstances, all of it. No, no, the difficulty all along has been to get to the end of you, to get to the end of me. For when a man gets to the end of himself, he has reached the beginning of God's working. So admit your powerlessness. And then what we see in this as well, then I would put before you is the second part of this is to surrender everything, to surrender your self-sufficiency, to surrender your plan, your dreams, all of it, and to lay it before God and watch him work. He'll do more than you can imagine. I mean, the disciples' best case scenario is like put as much money together and see what food that they could buy and it would scratch the surface. Their best efforts were like, we're gonna row and we're gonna row and we're gonna row and we're gonna try and make it across this lake in this storm, but when you surrender, you get to a point, you admit your powerlessness, that you can't change anything, and you surrender and you trust Jesus. And I know that might seem, I don't mean that in sort of a simple, trite way. At the end of the day, the God of the universe who can work through the death of his own son to bring about redemption, like why wouldn't we submit to him? He knows best. 
that it's in that place of absolute surrender that we begin to experience the strength that God has, the power that God has. Like, have you experienced this before? Maybe you've had this experience where you've gone like rock climbing or rappelling. Maybe you've done that. Um, I used to take trips where we'd take um, you know, busloads of middle school students to the mountains of, of Tennessee, which was far more terrifying than the rock climbing and the rappelling. All right, it was just surviving the bus ride, but, or the van ride. But we would get up there, and one particular place that we would go um, was called Savage Gulf State Park, which just sounds wonderful, right? And we'd go to this hiking, or sorry, we'd hike to this, this place that was known for its climbing and rappelling called the Stone Door. And literally, we would go out, here's the picture of it, um, that's not me sitting on the ledge, right? But we would go out to that exact ledge there, right? And me with 30 middle schoolers that their parents have all signed their lives away, like with the waivers, right? And so we would go out there, and the guide would tie out, and he'd hook us in, he'd do the carabiner and the clips and the harness and like all the, all the things, right? And I watched person after person, like middle school student after middle school student, like walk to the edge, all right, and then rappel down. And then it was my turn, and I was terrifying as, as could be. I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I'll just take pictures, right? Um, but having that moment of eventually, it's one thing to stand there. It's one thing to say, I'm going to surrender. But it's not until you actually do, until you actually lean into it. Because you can't do both. You can't say, I'm going to lean into it, all right, and also try and do it in my, in my own strength. There has to come a point of absolutely falling back and trusting all the equipment, all that. And when you're the most vulnerable, it's in that place that you experience the upholding power and strength. And what Jesus is saying is like, bring it to me. So he says, Jesus took the loaves. And after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. It's this call like Jesus says, okay, that, give it to me. That's what you have to bring. He took it from the little boy. And in that, there's power. There's an experience. And at that point, that kid went from like, all right, I've got a lunch. Nobody else does. Now I don't even have the barley and the, the small fish. He's got nothing. And it's in that place that God is ready to work. We think about it with the disciples. They're out at sea. It says eventually like they, they're afraid, but they bring Jesus into the boat. If you go and read Matthew's account of this, you get the well-known story. John doesn't include this detail, but let me read to you what happened in Matthew's account. Same story, same incident, same storm, all of that. Peter looks out, sees Jesus, all right? He's like, hey, Jesus, if that's really you, invite me to come out onto the water. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. Now, most of us remember the next line, like, oh, yeah, he began to sink, right? We kind of, like, scoff at Peter. The dude walked on water. In the history of mankind, Jesus and Peter, I don't know why we don't remember that part, right? It's like, oh, he began to sink. Yeah, but for a moment, he walked on water. Surrender. Like, he's invited, he sees Jesus, he's, he's seeing the God of the universe, the one who's sovereign over it all, and it's this complete and utter surrender, completely vulnerable, like standing at the top of that cliff and leaning back and rappelling down, he steps out. And the invitation for us is God is the one that can deliver, but will we trust him? Or are we gonna hold on to things thinking it's, hey, it's in our power and our strength, like we have got to do it ourselves. And Jesus shows up and over and over again, he's like, I'm inviting you to rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you 
rest. Why do you keep trying to do this? Why do you keep trying to pretend? Why do you keep thinking you have ultimate power and control? How has that worked out for you? Will you surrender to me? And this, we'll close with this. This is the story. This is the upside down kingdom that we're part of. That God would take an ultimate symbol of weakness, right? A Roman cross, what was used by the Romans to show to everybody their might, their strength, their power, that they're sovereign. We put it in our churches now. We hang it around our neck. We might hang it in our our home. Like we've taken a Roman execution device, the most humiliating, shameful way to possibly die, and that has become our symbol of hope. Well, how in the world, unless God is a God who works through weakness, that in weakness and vulnerability and all of that, he's bringing about strength, he's bringing about power, so that you and I can't take the credit. We can't say we got ourselves out of this mess, or we helped this person, or we saved this person, or we parented this child just the right way, or we did this with our career. Like, no, all of it by the grace of God. This is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he's pleading with God. He's got some thorn in the flesh. We don't know the details. He's pleading with God, and here's God's word to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, and in difficulties. Like, bring it on for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Not when I have power, not when I have control, not when I have, you know, like the the wind at my back. No, no, no. In my place of weakness, that's where I actually experience strength. Or as Paul would also write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. It's utter foolishness, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. The symbol of death becomes a symbol of life. Weakness, we get to experience the strength of God. Would we surrender to him? He cares, he sees, he knows, he's pursuing you. What would it look like to rest in him? I'm not saying that that's easy. I mean, the language here, our being saved is what 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says. Like, meaning the power is at work not just to save you and justify you, but to sanctify you, to make you more like King Jesus. It's an ongoing work. It doesn't happen just like that. So bit by bit, what does it look like? So I'm gonna pray for us and just ask, I trust the Holy Spirit's gonna bring something to mind. They're like, hey, I need to surrender this. Like, Jesus, I give everything to you. I surrender my self-sufficiency praying that the Holy Spirit would bring something to mind like, if this is the thing I'm trying to solve in my own strength. And Jesus is saying, why don't you admit you're powerless? Why don't you surrender that? And why don't you watch me work for my glory and for your joy? So let me pray for us. And uh, as we do that, after I pray, the worship team's gonna come back up. We're gonna sing together. And if you're a follower of Christ, we're gonna participate in this meal. Broken body and shed blood of Jesus. It's about weakness and we get strengthened by it. And so if you're here as a follower of Christ, while the song is being sung, when you're ready, come up and get the elements on either side of the stage. If you're gathering with us at home, if you're a follower of Christ, you can get the elements where you are, and we will take some time to respond and to rejoice, to remember, to to rest in the finished work of Jesus. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we give you all praise, and just 
man, glory, we thank you for your work. We thank you for this upside-down story. We thank you for the ways that you demonstrate and you showcase your power. We thank you for the invitation to trust you. God, we have to look no further than the cross of Christ to know that we can trust you, that you are worthy of uh, of our trust, that you would give us your son and that you would work through the terrible, despicable thing that happened on the cross to bring about salvation. So we surrender to you, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would speak to each one. What is that area? What's that thing that we've been holding on to? And I pray we'd experience the liberating power that's only possible through the gospel. And so God, as we participate in this meal, as we pray, as we sing, as we reflect, God, I pray that you would get your glory. And that we, as your people, that we would experience a truly deep and abiding joy. That we would have a confidence knowing that this is the story we're part of. It's not by our power and our might, but it's, it's by your strength and your might. And Jesus, right now, you are literally upholding everything by your word, by your power, by your, your, your sustaining it all. And so we rest in that. And we give you praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.